This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Writer Types, great conversations with today's top crime and mystery writers. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is the Clyde to my Bonnie, the Fredo to my Michael Corleone, the Sundance to my Butch Cassidy, S.W. Loudon. And Steve, we have some good ones for the folks today. That is right, Eric. Author David Gordon has some encouraging words for young authors out there. Writing has caused me more drama and heartbreak than everything else added together. And we invite Terrence McCauley to hang out with us in person. I've never had that experience yet, and I hope I never do. And we talk to author Nikki Dolson, plus a report from the San Diego Festival of Books. But first, Steve, you read any good books lately? I read something that is outside of the crime and mystery genre that is called The Desert and the Sea. Have you heard of this book? I have not. It's by Michael Scott Moore, and he's an old friend of mine from high school who I've stayed acquainted with over the years. And he is a journalist who was working on a story about Somali pirates in Somalia and was kidnapped and held for ransom in Somalia by pirates for 977 days. What? (laughs) Yes. 977 days. And I can tell you all of us that know him were incredibly thankful when he got home and he wrote this book about his experience that is just incredible because it is part personal memoir and part journalistic account. So he maintained a little bit of journalistic distance even as he was going through this thing himself. And it's a a really fascinating nonfiction read that I really, truly highly recommend. Well, that sounds amazing. I'm going to definitely check that out. Um, I recently read a a book that was a reissue uh, called The Syndicate by Clarence Cooper Jr. This is a book that came out in the early 60s and was deemed too controversial to even be published under the author's own name. And you can see why. It's very hard-boiled. It's an action-packed crime novel, novella kind of. It's short, super short. It's 128 pages, so it just clips along. I really enjoyed it, but it opened up an interesting thing, which is I had reservations because it is of its time. And in that sense, it's quite homophobic Mm. and it's deeply misogynist. And I couldn't quite divorce myself from those moments of the book. I was, I was, you know, I love a good vintage crime read and I can sort of put myself in the shoes, I think of readers in the forties and fifties and sort of get what they're going. Cause there's less sex. There's, you know, no cursing and it's a different kind of read, but this one was, had some moments where I just thought, Oh boy, don't, why'd you do that? And it, 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 as much as I like the book, those moments took me out of the story and I recommend it with reservations. Yeah, I find that really interesting. And I know there's a lot of conversation around this today about, you know, can you take a story out of the era in which it was written? 
uh, and read it 30, 40, 50 years later. I know I'm a huge Kurt Vonnegut fan. We've spoken about that before. Yeah. And as I was lit listening to the Kurt Vonnegut guys podcast, one of the things they often dove into were some of the chinks in his armor. And that if you, if you take into consideration the things he was writing about in the 60s and 70s, viewed through a lens of the 2000s, there is some misogyny and there is some of the, some things that we would now find objectionable. And it's just interesting to read that and kind of struggle with it because it does take you right out of the book. Yeah, it's it's definitely something to to ponder as we dig up these sort of lost classics and you think, well, maybe some are better left buried. <laughs> well, our first guest, David Gordon, is the author of The Serialist, Mystery Girl, and the brand new novel, The Bouncer. We caught up with David on a hot summer day from his home in New York. Yeah, I also hope you appreciate that I actually went from my air-conditioned bedroom to my little office just because I wanted to look somewhat professional for you guys rather than... Well, thank you. Rather than being on the edge of my bed holding this thing in my hand. <laughs> we appreciate it. Well, to return the favor, I put on pants. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, none of us can be sure where we're going. <laughs> it's not proof. We don't need to prove it. Yeah, we're good. Well, David, in your debut novel, The Serialist, you right. write about a pulp writer named Harry Block. And I couldn't help but see him as sort of an amalgam of several writers, uh, you know, maybe a little Lawrence Block, even though it's spelled a little different and, and you know, a couple of others in there. Is that true? Am I reading into that? Or did you well, take... I wonder who the couple others are. It's funny because I am a Lawrence Block fan, but I actually named him Block, I think... I really didn't think about it. And if anything, I think I was probably thinking about writer's block more than oh. I would. And I probably would have been a little more subtle in my sort of salutes if I'd have thought it through. Yeah, that was an unconscious homage probably. <laughs> well, you, you, with the writer's block there, you're still, you're working on multiple levels. I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. With all the success of The Serialist um, and all the awards and the praise that it got, when it was released in Japan, they changed the title to second rate novelist. Yes. And what we want to know is how did that feel? Uh, <laughs> you know, the whole Japan thing was so bizarre. I don't know if, if your listeners know this, but my, my first book became a kind of crazy bestseller in Japan. Uh, and so I was getting uh, like PDFs of newspaper clippings and things from Japan where I couldn't understand a single word. <laughs> would be a picture of my face and like a number one you know and i and so obviously the name serialist is a made-up word right so there is no direct translation in japanese so they used their word or phrase for pulp writer but when you plop that into google translate or whatever it comes back as second-rate novelist you know so <laughs> Uh, I thought it was hilarious, actually. And when I got to go to Japan, I kept saying, I know I'm just a second-rate novelist or introducing myself as David Gordon, the second-rate novelist. And, you know, obviously they're so kind there and so polite that they would immediately be like, no, that's not what it means. And, you know, but uh, I mean, I, I didn't, I just thought it was hilarious. So when are you moving to Tokyo? <laughs> yeah, I wish. That's where I always have to sort of calm people down and say, the key word there is that I'm a, a well-known writer, not <laughs> our movie star, you know, it's just not the same kind of numbers. For the most part, well, 
look, here I am talking to you guys on Google Hangouts, not being flown out to the coast. That sums up, you know. Uh, hey, our private jet is in the hangar. I otherwise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, I when I arrived in Tokyo, a TV crew was waiting to interview me. And when I got home, I just had to get on the train <laughs> by myself <laughs> with my luggage. <laughs> Even my family came to give me a lift home, so and it wasn't even a bullet train. <laughs> yeah, definitely. no, definitely not a bullet train. Well, all right, your new novel, The Bouncer, uh, is really great. I I loved it. Look, I have a copy of it here. Ah, oh, thank you, thank you, so kind. Now this is, let's call it like a it's a tough guy thriller about a guy who definitely lives on the wrong side of the law. Yes, but he's also drawn to a woman who works for the FBI. Yes. And she's also drawn to him. Yes. So I, I'm, I'm assuming that you really believe in opposites attract? It's funny. I was thinking about this in another context. And I think in some ways, Ovid got it right in terms of love. Like, I sort of feel like it's this completely mysterious thing. And you could fall in love with uh, somebody uh, who seems like a bad match for whatever reasons, opposites, certainly across any sort of gender or normal cultural divide. But I also feel like, why not a tree? You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. I feel like, in a way, those Greek myths about people just getting struck by a bolt and falling in love with a flower or a tree or uh, a bird make as much sense as anything else. Are there any any particular inanimate objects you've fallen in love with recently? <laughs> Books. Books. Well, if, I, if your bookshelf is any indication, you're quite a slut. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, I often used to say in the end, writing has caused me more drama and heartbreak than everything else added together. You know? <laughs> oh, now I can relate. <laughs> Well, your your second novel, Mystery Girl, was also about a writer. Yes. Um, why switch it up with The Bouncer? You know, it's funny because I never really questioned it. Like, to me, it, it, it these were all just very kind of like pragmatic choices determined by the fact that I was lucky enough to think of what I thought was a cool idea for a story. And then it's only afterward that I have to kind of analyze and justify these things and say, oh you know, is this person more like you? Is this more your style? I, I, I actually teach writing and I tell my students, don't think too much about these questions of your style and your voice because I'm not even sure what that means. You know, I, I sort of feel like when I was in school and people would say, I'm looking for my voice. I think I found my voice. I'm sure I, I would just panic because I don't even know. So I just focus on the thing I'm trying to write. Your writing resume in includes everything from pornography to Proust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is crime fiction sort of the perfect middle ground between those two things? You know, that's a good way to, that's, a, that's an excellent way to think about it. You know, my resume looks like I'm some kind of schizophrenic maniac unless you sort of know that the invisible ink says this is a person who was writing stories and novels this entire time and just doing whatever they had to do to, to, to eat and pay rent you know but in a way I think crime fiction is perfect because it does cut across everything else in a way I mean my first the first kind of grown-up writer I loved was Poe 
And actually, somewhere in my archives, there's a crayon little booklet that says Mask of the Red Death, a novel by David Gordon. So I was plagiarizing <laughs> back in like first or second grade or something. And so in a way, I feel like you have Edgar Allan Poe, clearly a great genius, a great American writer, but also the inventor of the detective story, a writer of horror, supernatural, even a kind of proto sci-fi. So I think that for me, yeah, those things do kind of converge. And so in a sense, I think you're right. Crime fiction is the thing that can sort of unite it all. So David, what comes next for you? There's a sequel to The Bouncer in the pipeline. So that's exciting. It was my first time writing any kind of sequel. My first time anybody asked, so. Uh, <laughs> It was challenging because there's a reason people choose to write fiction. And so suddenly having something where I couldn't go back and just say, oh, it's way more convenient if this person is six feet tall and that person comes from Germany, right? Like I was stuck with a certain kind of reality that I had to just work with. So that was a big challenge, but it was also really cool to be able to just go further and deeper into these characters. Pretty much every character who's still alive is in it. <laughs> so, Eric, I don't know about you, but I'm super excited about David's book called Tall People from Germany, because I think that's going to kill it. <laughs> The minute he mentioned being big in Japan, all I could think about was Wang Chung. <laughs> and then I remembered that Alphaville actually sang big in Japan, not Wang Chung. Well, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> so that's what's going on in my mind when I should be paying attention to an interview. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, you pretty much constantly think of Wang Chung on a daily basis. I'm sorry, what's that? I was thinking about Wang Chung. <laughs> <laughs> it only took 23 episodes to get a Wang Chung reference in there. Oh, it's always right there. It's always right there. <laughs> Tip of my tongue. I've just been waiting. <laughs> Nikki Dolson is next in the studio. Her debut novel, All Things Violent, is set in her hometown of Las Vegas. And that's where we caught up with her on another hot summer day. Is it hot out there in Vegas? Oh, it's so hot. I'm so over the heat. The older I get, I'm like, you know what? I'm willing to go back to snow is really where it's at. <laughs> I'm so over the heat. Like, uh, when I leave one side of town and it says the 113 and I get to my house and it says the 120, I'm done. Oh, man. <laughs> Neither of those are real numbers, by the way, folks. For if you're listening you along know. at home, those are not real temperatures. <laughs> I'm really over it. <laughs> She's over it, Steve. Let's let's make her answer questions about herself then. Okay. <laughs> well, Nikki, uh, your book is called All Things Violent, but surely you haven't included every violent act in this book. I mean, is an, an anvil doesn't drop on anybody's head or no one gets their shins broken with a pickaxe. So what what is the favorite act of violence in your book? My favorite Really, is the one where they're in the desert and she flings open the door to crack somebody who's trying to run away and they just nail them. It, it's sad. I'm very strange, but it amuses me to no end. <laughs> it just really does. And I think he gets backed over, which is not good, but it's, it's really just smacking him with the door. Just, yeah. It's got that comedy timing with the. <laughs> yes. 
Just hit him with the door. And then, oh, we accidentally backed over him. Dang it. See? <laughs> yeah. Were there any acts of violence that you thought of for this book that were too gruesome to include? No, honestly, I was pretty tame about all of it. I mean, since then, and in the rewrites, I was, do I decapitate people? But, you know, it's yes, bloody. It, the answer is always yes. It is yes. Okay, next book, next time. All right, so in the book, your character, Laura Park, trains to become a professional killer. Given the opportunity and, you know, the right set of circumstances, is that something you could see yourself doing? No, I don't <laughs> even like to kill bugs, really. It's, it's, I mean, I do it because I have kids and you just have to, like, show up and take care of things because they're kids and they don't want to, you know. But past that, I no, no. I'm, there's a spider in my house I just avoid at this point. And it's just, Vegas spiders are not tiny things. They're not. And it's just. So no, that's that's not for me. I just like the fact that she she stepped up, and you know, most people would talk about when they're doing something important for their kids. They talk about you know sending them to college or you know rescuing them from under a burning car. But your most motherly thing you can do for your children is to kill a spider. Apparently, well, <laughs> that, that's you know, that's really stepping out for you. <laughs> brown recluses are no joke. Is really what I'm saying. Okay, all right. You well, know, yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and. I'm very sheltered. I suppose my children are to a certain extent. I stayed in the house and read books. I didn't get out there. I mean, I lived in Chicago for a long time, and I'm like, there's gang wars? What? There's, there's what? <laughs> I didn't know. I stayed in the house. I read Anna Green Gables, Hardy Boys, uh, Little Sweet Valley High, and some Nancy Drew. So now you get me. You mentioned your kids. Are they aware of the crime filth that you write and publish? <laughs> um, the youngest knows that I, I write, but he's not really perused anything available online to understand that mom kills people in print. My older two, my daughter, uh, she's my oldest, and she's just tickled to no end. And she's always like, read my mom's book, there's dead boyfriend. So she's all about that. All right, well, the, the book is set in Las Vegas, where you live. Mm -hmm. So why was that the right location for this story? In my head, she's always leaving Vegas to to go handle things, to go take care of things. You don't kill in your backyard. Um, and for most of my life, Vegas was the place that I was always trying to get away from. Getting out of Vegas was like the thing I wanted to do. One of those aspects of me that is definitely in the book is that Important things happen here, but she's always leaving. She's always looking away. That's why it's Vegas, and that's why she does what she does here. <laughs> wow. Well, shifting gears away from all things violent, you're a 2018 mm -hmm. Pitch Wars mentor. Um, for our listeners I who am. aren't familiar with Pitch Wars, can you tell us a little bit about it? Pitch Wars is this great mentoring program. I was invited by the fabulous Carolee Garrett to participate. And we have mentors for all the genres, um, you know, YA, sci-fi, uh, literary, crime. You know, if you have an unagented, uh, unpublished manuscript, you know, you go through your mentors and you pick the one that you like. You pitch them, you know, with the first chapter and a query and a synopsis, I believe. Then together, you work through your manuscript. You look at, you know, the pros and cons of it, where it can be strengthened. I mean, you're really 
an intense critique partnership that's happening that hopefully will strengthen your manuscript and then make it you know something that an agent might want. Can we invite you to make an intense critique of our partnership between Steve and I? Because I th really think that we've been talking more and more about sitting down and talking with someone about <laughs> how things are going. <laughs> I am not a therapist, gentlemen. Oh. <laughs> I can't. I can't help you like that. Um, but you know, yo, you guys seem fine. You seem fine. That's that's the trick, you know. When we're out in public and we're talking to people, we like to keep a brave face on it. But behind the scenes, this relationship is a total mess. <laughs> wow. You know, then, you know, you put up that, that great facade that, you know, many a great marriage does that. I'm just saying. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Steve's my old man. Yeah. So Nikki, <laughs> Nikki, what's, what is coming next for you? I have no idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> You should join Pitch Wars and get a mentor. I, you know what? I was like, maybe I should be on the other side of this line. Real talk. I'm writing very slowly. Like, there's nothing really big in the the offing right now. Life keeps coming at you. And uh, so writing's kind of taking a little backseat. Um, well, in that heat, it slows you down. Yes. <laughs> Eric, those spiders aren't going to kill themselves. You know what? They're not, and they fight back. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> and Nikki, we are looking forward to more things violent from you when, when the time comes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. You know, Eric, I thought that was a fantastic conversation, but I, I'm stretching to figure out what it had to do with Wang Chung. <laughs> <laughs> Everything has something to do with Wang Chung, Steve. It does now. Well, Steve, you recently went down to San Diego to participate in the second San Diego Festival of Books. Is that right? Yeah, it was a really good time. Um, I was down there signing in the Mystery Writers of America booth. Big shout out to Lisa Brackman for organizing that and for Mysterious Galaxy for setting up and selling our books. Uh, it was a really huge crowd. I didn't really know what to expect because I kind of gauged these, these book festivals by the LA Times Festival of Books, which is just gargantuan. Yeah. But this was uh, smaller in size, but truly packed with people who were just fanatical about books. And it was really great to see and be able to take part in that. And while I was there, I got some interviews with um, some of our friends in San Diego who are writers, including Lisa Brackman, who starts and ends this segment. Hi, I'm Lisa Brackman, and the book I have coming out in about two weeks is called Black Swan Rising. It is a very cheerful story about misogyny, online harassment, mass shootings within the context of a highly polarized political campaign. But there are no Russians, sorry about that. Um, why is the book festival important for San Diego? You know, San Diego, I'm a native. San Diego's long had kind of a second city complex. And it's a great place, and it's always sort of struggled to establish its own identity other than, gee, isn't this pretty? We have nice beaches. Hello there. I'm Corey Feynman, author of the Raleigh Waters Mystery Series. As a native San Diegan and somebody that writes about San Diego in a lot of my books, this has been a great thing for us to have. We get a lot of people out here. We've got 10,000 last year. I expect more this year. Hi, I'm Alan Russell, author of... I guess 16 published books. I have done other book festivals. LA Times is, is great, but it's it's more of a zoo. This is less of a zoo, but it's still a bit of a zoo. Yeah. With airplanes flying overhead. With airplanes flying over and uh, and the history of the military all around us. Yeah. 
mean, it'd be good if these planes were dropping books on us, right? Better books than bombs, I always say. Hi, I'm Deborah Ginsberg. Um, I'm the author of several mysteries, most recently, What the Heart Remembers. And I'm out here today. It's a great event. Support the San Diego literary community, um, which is thriving. And I'm so happy to see so many people. It's such a well-attended event. Michael Higginbotham, and I'm a member of Partners in Crime, the San Diego chapter of Sisters in Crime. And the reason it's important to San Diego is to really bring out readers and support writers and, and also support the reading community in San Diego. Hi, my name is Matt Coyle. I'm the author of the Rick Cahill Crime Series. My next book comes out in December called Wrong Light. I'm at the San Diego Festival of Books, uh, the second annual. It's an important event for San Diego because we're the eighth largest city in the country, but um, people think that, seem to think of us as a small town. And actually, I just found out today from a friend that San Diego is one of the biggest markets of readers. So, and there are a lot of them out here today. So there's a real hunger for events like this here. And, you know, books and bookstores um, are a part of what make a real community rather than a simulacra of one. So I am super, super happy to see this. Um, this is just the second year. I hope this is the beginning of a long and expanding festival that's really going to serve the city and show what a great place we have the potential to be. Well, our final guest this time is Terrence McCauley, and he is the author of the James Hicks thrillers, but he's changed things up a little bit with his latest, The Fairfax Incident. All right, well, Terrence, after three high-tech thrillers in your university series, you stepped back in time for your new book, The Fairfax Incident, into a world with none of those you know, modern technological advantages. Mm-hmm. Was this kind of a reaction to writing books that were so dependent on the gadgets and gizmos? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it was—it was not just about the gadgets and gizmos. For me, it's always a, also about changing up my narrative style uh, because I never want to get too comfortable in one genre, and then it gets stale. And then the people who have found my books will start to say, "Oh, I know what's coming." I've never had that experience yet, and I hope I never do. I, I like to challenge myself as a writer as much as I want to reward the reader. So that's why I decided to go back in time and tell a story that I thought needed to be told. It joins up with my two previous 1930s books, Prohibition and Slow Burn, and nicely links that era with my university series by the end of the book. So that way also, from a, from a storytelling perspective, it broadens my universe. Your world building. Yes, that's well, I didn't want, I don't know what terms are in Vogue and not Vogue <laughs> now, so I didn't want to, you know, because transcending the genre was hot five years ago. Now you sound like an asshole if you use it, so I didn't want to sound any more like an asshole than I already do. Well, part of the reason why you, uh, why you might not know what terms are in Vogue is because you're jumping around 200 years at a time with any one of your books. I mean, you talk about challenging yourself and your next book's a Western. I right. mean, Jesus, man, pick a lane. Come on. <laughs> Does your genre hopping reflect your own reading habits? It does, yeah. I, um, I love to read a whole bunch of different genres. I never get stuck in one. If I find myself stuck in a rut, I try to change it up. But it's funny, my guilty pleasure is zombie books. For some reason, I love zombie novels. I, I, I don't know why uh, some people read Bigfoot porn. Other people love uh, other stuff. But for me, it's zombie novels. 
And uh, I'd love to write one one day if I could find something interesting enough, but I'm not going to do it just for the sake of doing it. But I do enjoy hopping around because it, it definitely keeps me fresh. Well, Terrence, you are one of the most New York New Yorkers that I know. How do you think the city and that culture that you grew up in affects your writing? It's There's always something going on. And that's why in a couple of interviews, I've gotten heat for saying I don't have writer's block. And they and people have said, oh, that's nonsense. Everybody gets writer's block. For me, for where I grew up and where I'm from, I work in Midtown Manhattan. If I ever meet, I'm stuck for an idea for a story, all I have to do, and I'm blessed in this way, is to be able to walk downstairs, look at the first 10 people I see walking past my office building, and boom, I've got a character, a bunch of characters for an epic, much less one novel. And it's probably a zombie novel. <laughs> and it's probably a zombie <laughs> novel, or it could be anything. So, I mean, I know setting, I'm very conscious of the setting of where I live has a big impact on where I, the way I write. So, yeah, I'm lucky, and I know a lot of people aren't that lucky, but you can always find inspiration someplace. Now, do I fall out of love with writing? Sure, I do. I mean, there are times I get bored, there are times I get burned out. I, it's never that I don't have an idea. It's just that I can't sit in front of that computer for one more second. I have to take a break. So that's why God invented Amazon Prime and Netflix. So that way I can, you know, binge watch on a weekend, recharge my batteries. And then by Monday, I'm chomping at the bit. Well, speaking of Monday, you work for the Transit Authority. Uh, why have you never set a thriller on a commuter train? You know, maybe something like the cigar enthusiast on the train or something like that. <laughs> because I don't want to get fired. No. Uh, that's, a, that's a good thing. Uh, yeah, we don't. It's funny that my part of my department, not me, but my department handled uh, Liam Neeson's group who wanted to film The Commuter. And they filmed some things on a mock-up train and they filmed some B footage as they were rolling past, but they didn't film anything on our train because we didn't agree with the premise. But for me, it's been done. Taking a Pelham 123 for me is probably the best uh, transit thriller you're ever going to see. And anything other than that would be derivative unless you went much bigger. So, you know, since I work for the agency, I don't want to put it in any kind of negative light. And I also don't want to give anybody any ideas. So that's why, uh, <laughs> you know, I do try to keep it separate. So you, much like me, you saw Walter Matthau at a young age and you thought, I want to be that guy. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, the funny part of it is I always tell people that if they ever want to learn how to write dialogue i tell them to watch uh network i tell them to watch glenn gary glenn ross and i also tell them to watch taking a pelham one two three the original one because that's how new yorkers sounded when i was growing up the tone the uh everything about that movie in particular is how people spoke back then and i get chills whenever i watch it because it's like watching a family movie because all of my family cursed like that <laughs> I noticed you put a lot of personal touches into your characters, uh, you know, like your love of a good cigar. Mm -hmm. Is that just a case of write what you know, or are all of these characters a little bit you? All of the characters to this point have been a little bit me, and also I did it because it made sense. Like, I love cigars, but I'm not going to shoehorn it in there just because I like cigars. Uh, you know, I did it a little bit with the Fairfax incident because the setting that Charlie Doherty was going into uh, called for a cigar, but he's not by any means uh, like Hicks who, who uses it full time. I'm not looking to shoehorn it in there, but if it can uh, fit in, that's great. I'll do it. Terrence, you're a prolific writer and you are a genre hopper, so I'm almost afraid to ask this question, but what is next for you? 
Uh, for now, I've got uh, one Western coming out in September, Where the Bullets Fly. Then I've got uh, the sequel to that one in my Aaron Mackey series coming out in March. It's called um, Dark Territory. And also for my, um, my thrillers with Polis, uh, Jason and I are talking about the next steps. If anybody has read A Conspiracy of Ravens, they know it's definitely set up for far more books. Yeah. Anybody who's read uh, The Fairfax Incident knows there's definitely a lot of other books there. And we just have to figure out what, he's, uh, you know, what he wants to do and when, and then we'll take it from there. And they'll all be set on the moon. Uh, right. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, they'll be they'll be hunting Nazis on the moon with penguins that are rigged to explode. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> or whatever so, outlanders come up with. You see, Steve, you, you just walk right outside your office in Manhattan, and, and these ideas come to you. I didn't know about the exploding penguins in Manhattan. I have to get back to New York. Yeah. <laughs> it's changed since you've been there. <laughs> Well, we're near the end here, Steve, but we have another book to give away. Yes, we do. Last episode, we talked with Martin J. Weiss about his new novel, The Second Son, published by our friends at Rare Bird Books. We asked you to tell us what you would name your social media thriller. And once again, Writer Types listeners came through. I'm sorry to have to tell you this, Steve, but your entry, The MySpace Falcon, did not win. You're not eligible. But our winner is... The Tweet of the Baskervilles by William Schmidt. Congratulations, William. And you have won a signed copy of The Second Son by Martin J. Weiss, courtesy of Rare Bird Books. Well, that's another episode down, Steve. What did we learn? David Gordon taught us that even a second-rate writer can be big in Japan. And Nikki Dolson taught us that Las Vegas spiders are no joke. And Terrence McCauley taught us that we're not the only ones into Bigfoot porn. Wait, Eric, why'd you save that one for me? <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. You can find us on Twitter, at WriterTypes. And please take a second to leave a review for the show on your preferred podcast platform. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>